Well, this passage before us this morning is, uh, if you are looking at the Pew Bible or I believe the the ESV heading here uh, and and possibly other uh, uh, translations might have the same heading, Um, it says there the, the third, Jesus foretells his death a third time. Uh, in Luke, Luke records three predictions of his death, but, he, but Jesus actually refers to these matters more than three times. Actually, there's seven references to his death or sufferings or resurrection or some combina- combination of the three. And I've given you on the outline uh, those texts, and I want to read those before we get to the Scripture because you can see how it builds up throughout the book of Luke, and of course this is true also in the other Gospels. First, we have Luke 5.35. And, of course, this is in the context of a parable that Jesus is speaking. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So there will be a sadness when Jesus is taken away. And then in Luke 9.22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 9.43, all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And then 12.50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, And how great is my distress until it is accomplished, referring to his death. And then in Luke 13, 32-33, he said to them, Go and tell that fox, he's talking about Herod, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then in 17.25, Jesus says this, First, but first, speaking of himself, the Son of Man, he must suffer many things and be rejected by, his, by this generation. And then our text, of course, today, Luke 18.31-34. through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Well, may God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word to us. Jesus, in his life, perfectly exhibited faith, hope, And love. We speak much about the love of Jesus. It tends to be the focus when it comes to the the, uh, trinity of these graces. We speak of his great love, of course, in his sufferings and death and and all that he did for sinners such as as we are. Uh, we, We also speak much about Jesus being the object of our faith. However, We speak less about Jesus' faith, the faith that he had, that he exhibited. I want to 
look at that some today. And then hope. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone speak about the hope that Jesus had. And once again, we see it. uh, It's on display in this passage. Jesus' faith, his hope, and his love. And I want to show that to you. I want you to uh, see Christ and and his glory in this passage and to see uh, these graces that he had exhibited in his life, not just in and of himself, but for his people. And we'll see how that is played out. But let's look first at the faith of Jesus. Obviously, from the passages that I read to you, Jesus knew that he, uh, all the things that, was, that were going to happen to him. He knew that he was going to suffer a very detailed knowledge of what he was going to suffer, uh, as we see in uh, chapter 18 there, the passage, the last passage that we read. Um, we see it, uh, we see it here in Luke, and we see it also uh, pointed out by the other gospel writers as well. But how did Jesus know? How did Jesus know these things? Now, our tendency is to think, well, he's the son of God, he's divine, he has a divine nature, and, uh, and of course he, he knows things that your average human does not know. Just a couple of examples. For, exa- uh, for example, the, the Samaritan woman. He knows all about her past, how many marriages she's had, and, and that she's living with someone now who's not her husband. That's supernatural knowledge. Uh, we think about uh, Jesus when he was uh, speaking to the disciples about Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus is going to die. He knows that Lazarus is going to die. And there are many examples of Jesus' supernatural, divine knowledge. He knows what's going on in people's hearts and minds. But I don't think this is uh, how he knows this here. Luke tells us also, early in Jesus' life, commenting on Jesus, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, and in favor with God and man. And that's really a little summation of his younger years as, uh, until he started his public ministry. Jesus increased in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. How did he grow in wisdom and knowledge? Well, he learned, like anybody does. He learned. He, he studied the scriptures, obviously, We see that on display here. He he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He knows everything about the scriptures, not just because God authored them, but because he studied them. He grew in his knowledge of the scriptures. He wasn't defective in his knowledge or defective in any way, just through experience and growth. And every time that he encountered a temptation and overcame it, Uh, He grew in wisdom. He grew in his knowledge and experience. And he became wiser and wiser, even though his wisdom was always perfect. So he says this here, that everything that is written in the prophets has to be fulfilled. Well, if it was just supernatural knowledge that he possessed here, why why did he have to point to the prophets? Why, Why did he say, here's what the scriptures say? He could have just said, well, I know. You know, I am the son of God, the son of man, and I know that here's because I've had this knowledge 
And the disciples had seen that sort of knowledge on display. Um, he had, they, had, they, had, they knew that he was supernatural in his knowledge. But he wouldn't have had to point that out, that these things were prophesied, if it wasn't that his knowledge was based on Scripture. Time and again, Jesus points to the Scriptures and their fulfillment. He points to the Scriptures because he believed the Scriptures. And he purposefully lived out the Scriptures. And that's really the point that I want to make. He knew the Scriptures. He knew what the Scriptures said about the Messiah. And he believed, he by faith trusted that those Scriptures were about him. And everything that was written there he made sure that he obeyed it, fulfilled it, followed through with it. And that's very, very important. He trusted the prophecies. He, he lived by faith in them. And he obeyed all those prophecies concerning uh, himself. He went to Jerusalem willingly because it was to be fulfilled. He went into suffering willfully because he knew that was what the scriptures taught that the Messiah should do. See, he lived by faith. And that's why he said things like, the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. And then you remember after he is raised from the dead, when he's on the road to Emmaus and the two disciples who are walking there don't recognize him and they're all, uh, they're all full of consternation about the fact that this one they thought was the Messiah has died and now he's, he's not in the tomb anymore. And, and then Jesus, it says there, says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Genesis and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus knew the scriptures. He believed the scriptures. He believed what the scriptures said about himself. And he lived that out. So his faith was on display. He, he trusted what it said there and he obeyed it. Now that's important. Why is it important? And why am I making such a big deal out of this? Well... What Adam failed to do, Jesus did. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden failed because they did not trust God's word. They did not obey God's word. And, of course, that has led to the ruin of humanity. We have been plunged into sin because they did not live by faith. Paul says Jesus was the second Adam. He came to get it right and he did. He fulfilled all righteousness. He perfectly obeyed God's word. He knew what the scripture said and he carried it all out perfectly in every, in every jot and tittle of it. He completely trusted God and fulfilled it. And, and that is important for us because not only did he suffer and die to pay for our sins, he also lived a perfectly righteous life and that righteousness, his righteousness, is credited to those who put their faith in him. In our union with Christ by faith, when we're united to him, his death is credited to our account, 
Our debts are paid for by Christ, but also his righteousness is credited to us. So just think about it as a bank account. If you are millions of dollars in debt and someone comes and erases your debt, well, you're just back at zero, right? You don't have anything in the bank. Jesus did that. He paid our debts. He erased the debt. So we're not just back at zero, though, because everything that he ever did, righteous in his life, is also credited to our account. We are righteous in Christ. Isaiah 53 speaks of um, the suffering of Jesus, and and a lot that's written there is talking about his death, his his vicarious death on our behalf. You know, uh, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there's a lot there about him paying the penalty for our sins. But down in verse 11, there's this other side of it. It says here, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So not only does he bear our iniquities, but through his righteousness, we are accounted righteous. So when we see Jesus here living by faith in God's word, not only is he in what he's predicting, he's doing something for us, but in the very act of predicting it and following through with it, he's doing something for us by being perfect, by being righteous. And that righteousness is credited to us by faith. Isn't that wonderful? Our bank account is full beyond anything we could ever imagine in the righteousness department. That's what God the Father sees when he looks upon us the righteousness of Christ shining through. So we see here Jesus time and again trusting the the Scriptures and obeying the Scriptures for us. I've given you on the outline uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, uh, which was written in 451, and it was written to address uh, a controversy in the church at the time about the nature of Christ. There was a a uh, false teacher named uh, Eutychus and uh, Eutychianism or uh, monophysitism, if you want to know all the big fancy words for it. Uh, but, but he taught that uh, Christ had one nature, and it was a confusion or a combination of human and divine. And the Chalcedonian uh, definition, uh, which is sometimes referred to, was written to correct that error. And I've given it to you. I won't, I won't read the whole thing. But there's a little phrase in there that I want to highlight. I think, I've, I think I outlined it, uh, underlined it in yours. It says that, uh, about four lines down in my thing, uh, truly God, truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood, like us in all respects apart from sin. So, He became a human, and he 
He was the perfect human for us. And that's what the, the Council of Chalcedon is, is recognizing that. And it also talks about his two natures there. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence. Not as parted or separated in two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. So when we talk about those two natures, his divine and his human nature, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to understand how those work together. But they're, they're there, both. They're distinct, but there's one person. So how does Jesus know all these things? Well, yes, he had a divine knowledge, but he also grew as a human, and he read God's word, studied it, and he fulfilled it for us. And there's his faith on display. Well, briefly, uh, I want to look at the other two, hope, the hope of Jesus here. And, and, it, and it flows from his faith. Now you think about Jesus and what he's saying here. You know, the, the detail uh, of his prediction that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. He's going to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and flogged and killed. I mean, if you know that you're facing that, and of course Jesus knew, and you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood, the pressure of that and the, you know, just the foreboding of it hanging over his head. But his, his uh, resolve to continue on to Jerusalem, and we'll talk about that next week as he enters Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. But you think about all that pain and suffering that he was going to go through. How does one put one foot in front of the other and walk into Jerusalem? How do you do that? Well, he had a great hope because he doesn't stop there. He says, and after three days I will rise. He had a hope based on Psalm 16 that says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That fueled him. That fueled him in his quest. He knew that he would be vindicated. Mark Jones has written a book about this uh, and he said, Christ had a particular hope in his own resurrection. He knew he would die, but he also knew he would be raised. In the pain and agony of Golgotha, Christ never lost hope that he would be vindicated. He never lost hope that his temporal sufferings would pale in comparison to the glory that would be given to him. Christ lived by hope in the resurrection. A great example to us, but he perfectly did it for us again. That's why he said on the cross, he could say confidently, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, or I commend my spirit. He knew he was righteous. He knew he'd been vindicated. And he knew he was going to be raised from the dead because death had no claim on him because he was sinless. Well, finally, we also see on display in this passage the love of Jesus, and that's obvious here. I mean, again, uh, he did exactly what was predicted here. He went through all that suffering on our behalf. And why did he do that? I love what Hebrews 12:2 says. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And what joy was that? 
It was the joy of saving sinners like you and me. It was the joy of seeing his people rescued from the dominion of sin and Satan to be able to give them a hope and a future and to have those people for himself, to be in close relationship to his people. And he did this while we were still sinners. What great love he had for us. Knowing that he was having to go through all that suffering, he had us in his mind. He had you in his mind as he suffered there. Um, Paul says this, uh, the life I live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's not just true of Paul. It's true of all his people. He loved you and gave himself for you. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It's too bad the disciples didn't quite get it. You know, they didn't understand what Jesus was talking about, but they would, and they got it, and they recognized, too, that Jesus had died for them because he loved them. Well, we need Jesus. We need this Savior. And, and, and that's who I want to commend to you today, the one who was perfect in his faith, hope, and love for us on our behalf so that we might be able to come to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word that points us to the wonderful grace and mercy that you have for sinners such as we are. Father, we pray that everyone here would embrace you as Lord and Savior. Help us, Lord, to see our need for a Savior. Uh, Lord, whether we are Christians or not, Sometimes, even as Christians, we can forget we need a Savior. And sometimes we fall headlong into sin and rebellion. Lord, we pray once again that you would forgive us and cleanse us. Take not your Holy Spirit from us, but give us again the joy of salvation. And Lord, for those who don't know you, have never come to faith in you, we pray that you would grant repentance and faith, grant us to turn from sin and to the Savior. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come to the Lord's table, let us prepare by singing together. You find it in the back of your hymnal, Psalm 23. We're going to